0: Happy New Year and welcome back to the Land and Climate podcast. My name's Alistair McEwen, and this week I spoke to Chatham House's Dr. Daniel Quiggin about his recent research on climate change and the aviation sector. Dr. Quiggin is a senior research fellow at Chatham House and an expert analyst in global energy systems and climate change. And as some of you might remember, we interviewed him in a previous podcast on his research on bioenergy and carbon capture and storage, or BECCS relying
1: on bioenergy with carbon capture and storage to offset these residual emissions from the aviation sector is just not compatible with the time scale that we've set ourselves for net zero in the uk which is 2050 so when you add all these factors together it again seems very risky to bake in the level of reliance that the Jet Zero strategy and many others are doing right now. And so again, my analysis uh, looked at well, what's a kind of reasonable, realistic level of reliance and what implications does that therefore have on demand reduction. And when you play this through, that's again why you end up with this, this, this demand reduction 36% by 2030.
0: The aviation sector has very recently heralded the arrival of so-called sustainable aviation fuels or SAFs. And in late November last year, it was trumpeting the first commercial transatlantic flight using such fuels. I began by asking Dr Quiggin if he could set out where the aviation sector currently stood in terms of global emissions and what kind of trajectory they were on. Uh,
1: My name's Dr Daniel Quiggin. I'm a senior research fellow. At Chatham House, and I've recently been working on the balance between supply side decarbonization within the aviation sector and the role of demand reduction and whether demand reduction or management can play a role in keeping the aviation sector on a climate compatible pathway. Obviously, the aviation sector is one of the most difficult sectors to decarbonize and within many different decarbonisation scenarios and models and analysis, be that by the Committee on Climate Change or others. The aviation sector tends to be one of those where there's a large proportion of residual emissions. Those are emissions that haven't been reduced within that sector itself and therefore reliant on abatement outside of the sector itself by offsets, be those by bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or by direct air capture, or by the land sector through sinks, such as growing trees through afforestation. That means that the sector is heavily reliant on these negative emissions outside the sector, and also some fairly optimistic and therefore risky reliance on technologies that are yet to be commercially deployed and scaled to the level that are required. Further, and this is one of my biggest concerns, is that sustainable aviation fuels have externalities, and maybe we'll come to unpack that a little bit, at scale. And the UK, as with many other countries, is not particularly good at considering how the supply side decarbonization, and its entire supply chain, how its level of reliance on those technologies scales up to the global level. And it's at the global level that really these externalities at scale come to fruition.
0: Let's go straight into the sustainable aviation fuels then and policymakers looking at sustainable aviation fuels. Your views on that and also if you could just explain externalities, what you mean by externalities? So sustainable aviation fuels are exciting for the aviation sector
1: and for policymakers because they don't require massive changes to the aircraft that are currently in existence. So you can blend sustainable aviation fuels into existing jet fuel, kerosene, and therefore have a blend between kerosene and the sustainable aviation fuels within those current aircraft. So that's why they're exciting uh, for the sector. However, they are reliant on bioenergy and bioenergy feedstocks, and bioenergy can come in various different forms. We can use wastes and residues, such as from the agricultural sector, and process them and turn them into SAFs, or Sustainable Aviation Fuels or they can be from uh, purpose-grown crops, bioenergy crops. And when they are grown from purpose-grown bioenergy crops, such as palm and turning that into palm oil, or miscanthus, which is a type of crop sometimes referred to as elephant grass, there is a risk that they displace the growing of crops for food, for human consumption. And we know that there's been a large degree of food price inflation over recent years. And the more we displace the staple crops within the land sector, the greater the risk is that we have food price inflation. And principally, it's more expensive to use waste and residues because those waste and residues tend to come from very dispersed locations so if you can imagine you've got a farm over here a farm over there and they produce a small amount of waste and this other farm produces a small amount of waste or maybe it comes from the processing of sewage uh, which can also be used and that's you're going to have a bit of waste from this sewage processing plant and another from another plant and that kind of Dispersal of those sources means that they need to be collected from various different locations and that locations and that increases the cost. So simply based on market economics, we would expect, unfortunately, for suppliers to tend towards wanting large monocultures of purpose grown biocrops in order to produce the SAFs rather than coming from waste and residues. And at the same time, there's lots of concern that there's probably not enough waste and residue sources to supply the level of demand that would be required in order to produce sustainable aviation fuels in the sorts of volumes that are needed in order to provide this big chunk of decarbonisation for the sector. So this really then points towards the fact that these bioenergy crops are going to be in tension with food production, and that's compounded by the fact that there are lots of other sectors uh, that are reliant on bioenergy into the future. For instance, you can produce uh, blue hydrogen through using bioenergy crops and that combines with carbon capture and storage and uh, blue hydrogen is heavily relied on by uh, lots of industries for high temperature heat processes and one other example of many would be bioenergy with carbon capture and storage which is a negative emission technology currently that's envisioned again to come from biocrops there's concern that that could end up coming from woody biomass um, but The sort of general concern here is if you scale up the supply of biocrops at the rate that is being required for the level of reliance across the world, these externalities at scale really start to come to fruition. And sadly, the people that will be most likely impacted by pushing up food prices are the most vulnerable populations in the world who are also going to be impacted by climate change. The most. At the same time, and this is just maybe one last point: lots of decarbonisation scenarios assume a level of supply chain emissions for SAFs, sustainable aviation fuels, which is an average across all of them, with very little analysis to kind of look across the various different range of sustainable aviation fuels and say, well, what proportion of the entire portfolio of those SAFs or or sustainable aviation fuels will be supplied by various different types and then sort of take a a weighted average. And when we do this, we find a much lower greenhouse gas emission saving potential. So these two factors combined means that the level of reliance that we are likely to be planning for should be reduced. That means there's an even bigger emissions gap when we look at SAFs.
0: And just to be clear on sustainable aviation fuels, I mean, first of all, the term itself could actually be slightly misleading in that it's not necessarily sustainable. I mean, it's, it's a kind of industry coin phrase, I guess. I mean, you might want to say something about that. And just secondly, they're not zero emissions fuels, just to be clear for listeners. They're fuels which, because they're using in general bioenergy, and therefore there's, in a sense, there's a kind of emissions are absorbed, and then there's the kind of bioenergy crops are renewed, that in connection with using something like like carbon capture and storage, only then could there be, a, theoretically, an entire removal of emissions. Is, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I suppose one small caveat or correction to what you just said is that in order for them to be literally zero emissions, they would have to also combine with carbon capture and storage on the plane, <laughs> as well as carbon capture and storage on the vehicles that move the biofuels around and the plants that process them, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which really is not being planned for. Within the analysis that, that I've done, uh, we've found that the emission-saving potential of around about 58%, relative to kerosene or jet fuel. And and maybe one other point that, that I haven't mentioned quite yet is that we're already seeing, right, that the bioenergy feedstocks that are coming into Europe and to the UK, and the main suppliers are China, Indonesia, and Malaysia, particularly in relation to China, there's growing concerns that these feedstocks, which are being classified as used cooking oil are unlikely actually to be used cooking oil. And the concern is there's fraudulent declarations being made because in actuality, they may well be palm oil. And obviously, uh, when you grow palm, that displaces you either you know, cut down forests or you displace food production. Um so this really speaks to the heart of one of my concerns, which is that supplying bioenergy feedstocks through these waste and residues, in this case use cooking oil, it's just not economically viable to produce them in the volume. So we're the, gonna end up more likely using things like palm and palm oil. Maybe one last final point on this topic, which is that, you know, the UK government recently announced that in Teesside, there's going to be a plant uh, built producing SAFs, uh, sustainable a- aviation fuels, from wastes and residues. The volume of production at that plant will be uh, around, uh, I think if I can remember my numbers, 165 million litres. However, if we put this into kind of a global context, if the rest of the world was to rely on the same level as the UK... We would require around about 1,000 facilities of an equivalent size to supply to the entire world. That needs to be put in context. Currently, there's around about 825 active oil refineries in the world today. We're planning implicitly at a global level to have the same level of production in terms of facilities As we have oil production now, the oil industry has been in existence for many, 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 many decades, and we've only got around about 25, 26 years to 2050. So it's these sorts of reality checks that we need to have in our mind when we're talking about any decarbonisation option, indeed for any sector, and really think about the realities of trying to achieve these rather than simply relying on models such as integrated assessment models, which are used by the IPCC, so the International Panel on Climate Change, which are cost optimising models that prescribe a particular level of reliance on some decarbonisation technology but don't necessarily take in these sort of on the ground realities. And one really big last concern is that these models, particularly the integrated assessment models, some of them do, but they don't always explicitly model the amount of land at a kind of granular level or geographic level. They tend to have quite optimistic assumptions as to how much land will be available. And sometimes that's reliant on genetically modified crops to increase yields when we're producing staple crops such that we then free up land such that bio crops can be produced so you can see that there's this stack of quite optimistic assumptions and it's this optimistic reliance which embodies risks that the analysis that I've done is really trying to put in context and then say well if we don't have this level of reliance or we don't achieve this level of supply what does this mean for demand? Do we need to reduce demand a bit in order to compensate for the emissions gap that therefore would open up?
0: Okay, and before we go on to your conclusions around demand and demand reduction, can we just go through for listeners a a few more of the possibilities on the supply side, on the so-called supply side, around where are we on hydrogen on electric flying, etc. I mean, just to kind of explain what the other mooted possibilities are and how far away we are on those.
1: I think I think people are very excited about hydrogen and and battery powered planes. In the long term, both hydrogen and battery powered planes could be a real game changer for aviation. Um, however, if you dig into most models including the government's own Jet Zero strategy, which is their sort of equivalent model that forecasts the level of reliance on various different technologies. My view on those models is actually they don't have a particularly high level of reliance. And I think that is informed by much more realistic assumptions. For instance, no one really is planning for electric planes to fly in excess of 400 kilometres because you've got range limitations. Those sorts of assumptions are already embedded in most other people's analysis. So when I looked at them, I sort of thought, well, these are reasonably realistic, but the level of reliance is not particularly high anyway. So there's not a particularly big risk there. Some in the industry talk about those two technologies as playing a really big role, but policymakers aren't really planning for that. So that doesn't concern me so much. I think final point on them is both of those technologies require completely different aircraft. You can't burn hydrogen in a jet plane, a commercial airliner that exists today, and nor can you retrofit uh, that sort of plane to fly based on batteries. So they they would require the phasing out of current aircraft and the replacement of, and that's one of the really big challenges. I don't know whether you want to go into fuel efficiency. That's one of the the other big elements of decarbonisation of the sector. The really big problem when we look at fuel efficiency, like with sustainable aviation fuels, the fuel efficiency savings are a big component of emissions savings in most aviation scenarios, including the UK governments. The issue really is that planes, their lifetime is around about 22 and a half years. And we've had a recent kind of integration of a new generation of aircraft in the last five to 10 years. So those planes that have recently entered into the commercial fleet are likely to be in existence for the next 10, 15 years, unless you phase them out very quickly. So you're left in this position of, do you phase out aircraft that are relatively new, sooner than they should be? But if you do There aren't new aircraft with particularly high fuel efficiency savings that can come online in the immediate term. So there's not a great deal of point in doing that. But then if you wait for this next generation of aircraft to come along with much greater fuel efficiency savings, then so much time has passed between now and 2050. And there's not much time really left for those aircraft to make Big emissions abatement savings either. So you're left in this kind of weird position, and it's not that dissimilar really to the issues with passenger cars. So internal combustion engines, you know, lifetime is nine years. Electric vehicles are much more developed, but you know, do you encourage people to scrap their cars now before the end of their lifetime when actually? across the entire sort of supply chain of that car actually the steel and all of the components that go into a car make up and an electric vehicle can make up 30 to 50 percent of all the emissions over the lifetime of that vehicle inclusive of the electricity that goes into the electric car so it's not quite as simple as there's going to be this huge influx of much more efficient planes that are going to be flying around and we can just slot them into the fleet whenever we want. There's this real sort of tension of, you know, how do you integrate them? When do you integrate them? Is the technology ready now? Or do we need to wait 10 years? But then if we wait 10 years, will they actually contribute enough considering there's only, you know, 25-ish years left to 2050? So probably fuel efficiency savings have the biggest potential to save emissions within the sector, but it's not enough, just to be really clear with the stack of all the other supply-side decarbonisation options to put the sector on a climate-compatible, and when I say climate-compatible, I mean compatible with carbon budgets that prevent us exceeding 1.5 degrees with a reasonable chance, specifically a 67% chance. We still need demand reduction, as my analysis has
0: shown, First of all, let's go into your emphasis on demand reduction and your emphasis on the kind of demand solutions that you've kind of gone through and analysed.
1: Yeah, I'm reluctant to, and I was reluctant in in the report and the analysis that I did to prescribe the policy mechanisms to achieve demand reduction. Just one example to achieve demand reduction would be a frequent flyer levy. And a frequent flyer levy is uh, simply to say that if you take one flight each year, you wouldn't pay an additional tax or levy on flying. But as you go to your second return flight, probably important to emphasise return flight, your second return flight, you would start to pay a tax or a levy on that flight to increase the cost of it to act as a penalty or a disincentive to to fly and then up to your third fourth fifth that levy increases so it it's debatable as at what level or increment uh, that levy should be set because obviously if you're already flying 15 times a year you're probably reasonably wealthy and so you're not that sensitive to price and so the levy the increments that you would go up by would need to be quite heavy in order to disincentivise flying. Um, But that's a question really for policymakers and economists to work out. But that's just one example of a way to achieve demand reduction. Really, my analysis, what it did in terms of a kind of sort of unique contribution to the debate was to look at all these supply options, set a a reasonably realistic level for them. Obviously, there's lots of assumptions baked in there, and my report goes through them in some detail, and then say, okay, well, what is this level of demand reduction? And I say, well, the analysis says that by 2050, you would need a a fall of around 25% or a quarter relative to 2019 levels, i.e. pre-pandemic levels. But a more prudent uh, precautionary principle would be, rather than to put the emphasis on the long-term demand reduction, i.e. out to 2050, would be to place the emphasis on the near term. So by 2025, 2026, a policy in the UK is implemented such as a frequent flyer levy that increases or decreases people's uh, uh, flying, what level would that be by 2030? And my analysis shows that that's around about 36%. So it's 36% in 2030, which is greater than the 25% in 2050, because obviously in the near term, your emissions intensity per flight is higher because as you go out in time closer to 2050, the decarbonisation, supply decarbonisation options have kicked in and therefore your emissions intensity per flight has decreased. And just to emphasise, in this near-term demand reduction scenario, 36% decline, and this is in uh, passenger kilometres flown, uh, just to be clear, you actually can allow the sector to recover in terms of demand by 2050, such that by 2050 demand is at similar levels to 2019, to pre-pandemic levels. So actually on the long term, placing the emphasis on demand in the sort of late 2020s towards 2030, actually this puts the, the sector on a healthier trajectory in terms of demand because that demand can come up by 2050. And I think it's really interesting then to analyse what this then means for individuals. What are you asking of individuals in order to get to this 36% reduction overall in passenger kilometres flown? In essence, everyone who flies once, when I say once, I mean a return flight, or less, i.e. doesn't fly, which is... Around in the UK is around about 75% of us. Um, three-quarters of us don't fly more than once per year. Everyone who flies more than that, if they reduced by one flight and no one took more than four flights, and again, these are return flights, then we would get to this 36% reduction by 2030. And I think that's really interesting because it's really not affecting the majority of people, right? So most people, the 75% of us who are taking one family holiday per year, or, or none, are just not affected by this sort of policy, be that through a frequent flyer levy or other mechanisms. So in my view, this is a, this is a reasonable level of behaviour change to set the aviation sector on, on a climate-compatible pathway and not contribute to accelerating climate change. And maybe one last point to make on this is that the Committee on Climate Change have stated in various different progress updates that the sector is struggling to get these supply-side decarbonisation options to work and that government does need to start to develop Demand management policies. If the sector is not on a climate compatible path by the late 2020s, i.e., the second half of this decade, then those demand management policies should start to be enacted. So, I'm not a sort of a crazy analyst on my own saying this here. The you know the Committee on Climate Change have already stated this, and and just to say maybe one last thing on this, just to kind of give you a real world example. Not that long ago, the French government were given the green light by the European Commission to prevent people taking short-haul flights of less than two and a half hours where there is a where there is a fast train, uh, TGV, between an equivalent journey type. So, you know, if you're, I don't know, if you're Paris to Bordeaux, I don't know actually whether that, that would be exactly right, but if there is a train to replace that, that type of route, then you won't be able to take that sort of short-haul flight. So governments are already moving in this direction, and the Climate Assembly and lots of different surveys have showed that the UK population supports this type of demand management policy, so long as it is fair, and that's really crucial. And actually an Ipsos poll showed that in terms of demand management was the most voted for or agreeable policies within net zero to do demand management within within the aviation sector.
0: Maybe let's then just go on to residual emissions and what you wanted to say about perhaps it's it's also related to so-called negative emissions technologies and what's going on there
1: so the uk government has a uh, one of the departments within within the uk civil service is the department for transport and the department for transport has a strategy called the jet zero strategy And it is a aviation specific decarbonization trajectory where they've analyzed the various different supply side options and so on. Within the jet zero strategy, the level of residual emissions in 2050 for the sector is around about 19 million tons of CO2. And that is actually 20% higher than the sector's emissions in 1990. So what we're essentially saying or what the government is saying is that they are quite content for emissions from the sector, from the aviation sector, to be higher than in 2050 than its baseline for the Climate Change Act, which is saying quite a lot. And so then we need to ask ourselves, can we actually supply enough negative emissions to meet that 19 million tonnes? You know, it's important to recognise that today we have no engineered negative emissions because those are reliant on two technologies, principally uh, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage and direct air capture. Now, the big issue is that in terms of engineered emissions, the majority are foreseen to come from bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So really to analyse Whether this 19 million tonnes of residual emissions being offset by negative emissions is realistic within the Jet Zero strategy is to ask ourselves what's going on with bioenergy with carbon capture and storage now and how is it likely to progress into the future. I think the really big issue is that whilst lots of models hope, and I emphasise the word hope, that the bioenergy feedstock would come from biocrops or waste and residues, everything that's being planned for based on kind of market economics at the moment is likely to come from woody biomass. Now, woody biomass, that's trees. And so then we need to ask ourselves, how long has it taken that tree to grow? Because for that negative emission to be truly negative, you need an equivalent tree of the same size to replace the tree that is combusted and then the CO2 emissions captured and then stored in a geological formation. So if that tree is 50 years old, or the average tree within the forest that the wood pellets came from is 50 years old, then we need to wait 50 years for that negative emission to be truly negative. This is called the carbon payback period. Unfortunately, the carbon payback period of most of the woody biomass that we're being that's burning at the moment is in excess of the 25-ish years, 26-ish years to 2050. So relying on bioenergy with carbon capture and storage to offset these residual emissions from the aviation sector is just not compatible with the timescale that we've set ourselves for net zero in the UK, which is 2050. I mean, there's lots of other issues with bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, such as cost, and the emissions along the entire supply chain. So when you add all these factors together, it again seems very risky to bake in the level of reliance that the Jet Zero strategy and many others are doing right now. And so again, my analysis uh, looked at what's a kind of reasonable, realistic level of reliance and what implications does that therefore have on demand reduction. And when you play this through, that's again why you end up with this 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 demand reduction 36% by 2030.
0: It seems like a bit of a mess in the sense that industry and, well, at least policymakers in the UK, they don't seem to be that well prepared for the emissions that the aviation sector are going to be confronted with. <laughs> Did the aviation sector have any response to your research and
1: not as yet. My analysis came out. The report came out around about November of last year. So a few months ago. And we've just started doing some dissemination events around the, the first one was on, on Wednesday last week. There's a one coming up if anyone's interested on Wednesday next week, 3 PM UK time. You should be able to find a link on the Chatham House website if you wish to do so. And in those webinars, there are quite a few, you know, big airline uh, companies signed up and players within the industry. There hasn't been particular pushback at the moment, but that doesn't mean that won't come down the line. You know, it takes a bit of time for people to digest this sort of analysis. I think you're right. The entire sector is, is somewhat off course and it does feel like a bit of a mess. I suppose the thing to say, I'm not, I'm not going to get hugely into the politics of which is the right policy mechanism and everything else, but I do just touching upon your question around kind of the mess of it and the politics. I would, I would say, People do love to fly, right, be it through immigration or just people moving around the world for work. People do need to fly these days because we live in a globalised society, to fly back home to visit relatives, to go and see sick relatives, whatever it is. It's not just holidays and and luxury. So, And goods are moved around by aviation. I suppose I use the analogy really that if if climate change and the decarbonisation of our economy, if we made the analogy that if an individual were to be on a diet and you walked into a big luxury store and you were looking at all the different food in there and flying would be the chocolate gato of your purchase options, right? Everyone wants to eat the chocolate gatto because it tastes so great and, you know, it's a, often a luxury item. So, you know, the government turning around and saying you can't fly, there's going to be a backlash to it. There's You know, that's a very difficult political sell. And I get that. But the impacts of climate change are likely to be so horrendous and we're so near to passing 1.5 degrees and the climate impacts that are associated with them that we really do need to think whether we allow citizens or, you know, give really strong guidance to citizens that we probably shouldn't be eating that chocolate gatto or, or taking that flight or at least cutting down on how much chocolate gatto we eat if we don't, it's going to have drastic consequences. I mean, maybe just one final point, and my analysis did this, is that this analysis was all set within the context of a fair share of the global carbon budget for the UK aviation sector, in order to not pass 1.5 degrees, and to retain as much of that carbon budget out to 2050 as possible. And the reason being is that, you know, you've got the IPCC and others already saying that by 2030, you know, there's a high chance of passing 1.5 degrees. I think people often forget that there's a real scientific reason as to why 1.5 degrees was set. You know, it's not an arbitrary target. And the reason being is that there's all sorts of climatic tipping points or feedback loops that that are likely to kick in as we go past 1.5. Admittedly, there is a degree of scientific uncertainty around this, but this is the risk. That as we pass 1.5, you get greater melting of the ice sheet and snow reflect more sunlight back into the atmosphere. And so you get this kind of acceleration of climate change because a dark surface where the snow once was absorbs more heat and that accelerates global warming in of itself. And there's lots of these climatic tipping points. And so as we pass 1.5, these tipping points kick in, accelerating climate change. So that's the real risk. So I set a carbon budget for the for the aviation sector based on a sixty seven percent chance of not passing one point five and I would argue that you know a sixty seven percent chance is a not particularly great chance, given the impacts that could come about so if we were to increase that percentage chance to ninety five percent your your carbon budget would would decrease even further, and therefore your demand reduction that you would need would would, would increase so Whilst there are lots of assumptions built into this, we do need to just keep at the forefront of our mind that, passing 1.5 is not some arbitrary thing. I mean, I won't say which global technology leader I was listening to on, on another podcast the other day, but but let's just say a, a, a fairly prominent one. And they were saying, well, you know, we could have three degrees of warming, but, you know, so long as we don't go too much higher than that, it doesn't really matter. Here are all the technologies that are not even at commercialization stage yet. Let's get them to commercialization and we'll live happily ever after. Well, that's just not very realistic. We need to set a time frame and realism around how supply side decarbonisation comes to fruition in the context of the of the timeframes of preventing catastrophic climate change. And if we don't,
0: we're going to cook ourselves thanks very much to dr daniel quiggin for his time you may know we have recorded other podcast episodes which go into the issues raised in this interview such as an investigation into the cooking oil trade and a more in-depth explainer of the impacts of developing BECS or bioenergy with carbon capture and storage you can find all these episodes on our website or on our podcast platform As usual, there's also a list of suggested further reading, which includes links to Dr. Quiggin's recent research and a link to the Chatham House webinar on this issue next week. My colleague Bertie Harrison-Berninski will be back in a fortnight with another interesting interview, we hope. And thanks to our episode producer, Vasco Kostovsky. Bye for now, and thanks a lot for listening.